0: Welcome to Building Safe Workplaces, casual talk about serious matters. I'm your host, Tommy Knitt with Hask. Today we're joined by a special guest from the National Safety Council, Rachel Cooper. Rachel, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. First of all, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Second of all, yeah, my name's Rachel and I work for the National Safety Council. I'm um, based out of Madison, Wisconsin, so I'm actually already a remote worker. So for many of you who are newly <laughs> experiencing this during the pandemic, i um, Yes, it is certainly an adjustment. Um, my, my background is in public health and international health, and I've worked on substance use and mental health related issues for the past, close to a decade, both abroad and here in the United States. My role with the National Safety Council is to support employers and helping their employees as they work through addiction related issues, mental health, mental illness related issues, et cetera, and keeping the workplace both physically safe as well as mentally and emotionally safe.
0: Thank you, Rachel. That, that kind of tipped our hand on our, our topic today, on mental health. Uh, so let's just dive right into it, shall we? Uh, 2020 has been a very unique and challenging year, offering us lots of obstacles to overcome. But how has COVID affected the mental health of people across the country in general?
1: Sure. So I just want to take a quick step back from that question and talk a little bit about just in general how COVID has impacted mental health, because I think it's good to understand that big picture and how it really impacts all of us. So mental health is our day-to-day mental well-being right? It's not a mental illness. Mental illness is a diagnosable condition. And, you know, some one in five Americans is diagnosed with a mental illness every year. A lot of us struggle with a mental illness, but the mental health component is, is much more to do with our resiliency, with our coping skills, with how we deal with the day-to-day. And I think we all know that, you know, come March 2020, when the country shut down, it was a time of readjusting to this new normal that was anything but normal. And all of us had to figure out how we were going to cope best. Some of us have kids at home. Some of us don't. Some of us were furloughed or laid off. Some of us still had a job. Some of us were still working. Some of us were working from home. Some of us were frontline workers and nothing changed. And some of us were frontline workers in the medical industry and everything changed. So of course, our mental health is going to be impacted. And for many of us, our normal coping mechanisms, going and seeing friends or family, taking a vacation, going to the gym. um, those healthy coping mechanisms were interrupted. It was also true that some people choose to cope by using substances, um, including everything from alcohol and tobacco, which are legal substances, to illicit substances, uh, including, depending on your state, cannabis products or marijuana. And also, of course, opioids and the opioid crisis is something that, of course, we know is um, still a problem, has been for well over a decade at this point, and something the National Safety Council has really addressed in the employer world very frequently so for people who are in recovery and this is i'm going to paint with a broad brush here and if you are somebody who's listening to this and you're in recovery this might be different for you because everybody's recovery is a personal private journey and it differs from person to person and this may not resonate with you and if so that's fine but for many people the backbone of recovery is their community and for many people, that community is an in-person thing. For most of us, all of our communities were in-person up until the COVID-19 pandemic. But the with the pandemic shutting everything down, you know, people in recovery had to adapt to new normals as well. Many people in recovery had to adapt to new normals as well. Things can get bumpy a little bit. Online meetings are not the same as um, in-person meetings. Online telehealth appointments with your medical professional, not the same as being in-person. Um, routines are often very important for people and so when those routines get interrupted that's very difficult as well so we do know that a lot of people especially in those initial weeks really talked about the social isolation being really really difficult so all of the pivoting that everybody did to get everything up and running online you know those first few weeks are still really hard as far as a very Niche component when we talk about recovery because recovery obviously can be for so many things. I mean, we know that one in 10 Americans already lives in, a, in recovery. So there's a lot of people out here. We may not be public about it, though. People may not be public about it. So you might have friends or family who are living in recovery that they've never used those words. Or they've never said anything about it. So, you know, it's a, just a good thing to remember as you go through your day to day that, you know, you, we don't always know, you know, somebody's history or, or what this looks like and then last before we kind of go to the next question i just want to to make a a quick um comment and we're recording this you know on september 2nd so this is the beginning of national recovery month um there are a lot of really wonderful resources both locally in your community and you can always go to SAMHSA, which is uh, the substance abuse and mental health services administration website they do have a hotline to access treatment treatment and recovery support so i highly encourage you to check it out if that's something that you need as well as your local organizations um, recovery is possible. we just you know, especially in the world of opioids, we know that when mm-hmm. relapse is a really scary thing, and when you 're alone physically alone, your likelihood of having a fatal overdose and is is much higher so it 's very scary time, so please reach out if you need help if you need support,
0: yeah, Rachel, you mentioned how challenging it 's been and I'm not even addicted to opioids or, or have an issue with that, but I certainly feel the challenge every day through going through this whole pandemic. It's It's been quite a bit. So uh, what what kind of numbers are you seeing? I mean, have you seen uh, like an increase in, in addiction or opioid uh, 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 dependency coming up? I mean, during the pandemic, we heard that alcohol sales, for example, you know, tripled during this pandemic. What kind of statistics have you seen any spikes in opioid addiction
2: sure yeah actually so a couple a couple ways to answer that question and one is one is about you know the actual prescription opioid and part of what happened with the you know the actual prescribing practices of all across the country and this differs from state to state so you know it's going to just be different depending on wherever you're listening from but the DEA relaxed a lot of its regulations on what can be prescribed or refilled or for how long you can get a prescription because they wanted to reduce the amount of in-person interaction in pharmacies, and clinics, et cetera, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm not, you know, saying either which way, but this critically, it's obviously critically important that, you know, we make sure that we're disposing of our medications safely. We do know that having, you know, um, an excess of medications in the home is not something that's safe for anybody, including your children, including your, you know, parents or, or whatever. And, but we do also know that, you know, we have over 40 states at this point reporting that they've seen a really serious spike in overdoses since March of 2020. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, you know, I mentioned this previously, a lot of the social isolation components, people who are using alone, people who haven't used in a long time, and what we would call a lapse or relapse when they start using again, and that's a very dangerous time. We also know that, um, and I won't get too far into this because I'm just gonna be a total nerd about it, but we do know that the illicit drug market has been pretty seriously impacted because of things are coming in from different places. Um, and. We know that you know the further west you go, that we were already actually seeing a spike in opioid overdose-related fatalities um, from 2018 to 2019. We know that we're at you know preliminary estimates but 2019 at over 50,000 people who had passed away, you know, from opioid-related overdoses, and that's up from 2018. That number did jump, and a lot of that has to do with illicitly manufactured fentanyl, especially the further west you go, which hadn't really seen that um, to date. So. This was already spiking, but COVID nineteen is absolutely exacerbating it. And then, of course, you know, interruptions in treatment services and recovery services are all important things to really consider because when we are in treatment for something, it needs to be consistent. It needs to be consistent from both sides, from your side and from the medical provider side. All of that change. So yeah, we're really seeing that it's a scary time for people, and you know. With the transition to telehealth, which a lot of places did, you know, we were hearing from some insurance companies that they've seen a thousand percent spike in their telehealth claims. We're hearing that EAPs or employee System oh. programs are completely overwhelmed because they have, you know, such an influx of calls that they don't know what to do with. They weren't prepared. Nobody was prepared. But yeah, so we're really seeing that, like, you know, the initial spike in correlation, to all those things is really important we know that economic vulnerability leads to an increase in substance use we know that economic vulnerability also correlates with an increase in mental health distress we also know unfortunately that these impacts aren't going anywhere this is not something that as we come out the other side of the COVID-19 pandemic that these impacts are just going to go away they can be long-lasting impacts which really are going to impact your family your friends your coworkers, your employees you know for some time to come
0: that's that's interesting. So by by trying to help people and allow give doctors the the ability to fill more prescriptions, they're actually hurting people, right? They they they're they're causing more and more of these prescriptions to be filled and and people are are abusing those at this time.
2: It's just such a classic example of just how, you know, there's so many different sectors that work on this 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 epidemic and this this opioid overdose epidemic that's, you know, labored our country again for over a decade at this point. I mean, you have to have that, you know, your medical professionals, they have to do what they have to do to stay safe themselves. Um, we need people to be able to get the medications that they need to get. People need to be educated on how to safely dispose of those medications. Um, we need to make sure that, you know, as we start to come out the other side of this, that people are aware of regulations and what's changing and what's not because people, it's changing too quickly for people to track. So how do we make sure that people understand what's safe, what's legal, what's the expectation? And then, you know, even beyond that, I mean, moving in alignment is really hard when you've got so many different sectors and, you know, but there's also the the faith-based communities, the recovery communities, what, what, you know, we need, we need to be in sync, you know, from the ground up, which is tough. It's really tough, but it's certainly worth doing. And that's kind of where, you know, the National Safety Council, we really focus a lot on multiple audiences and bringing, making sure that people have, you know, the right information, but also the right people in the room so that. When you're talking about something, you're getting the right information from all sides.
0: Well, that sounds really depressing, but is there, is there any positives that we can take away? I mean, have you seen any improvement? Obviously, we tried to help, but it may have hurt the situation. You mentioned the economic hardships that are going on, and they're even more prevalent right now as we get deeper and deeper into this pandemic. But is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Is there something that we can hang our hat on and say, hey, this is getting better?
2: Yeah. So I think, you know, the first and foremost, I think that this did push us all to really understand the benefits and the potential of telehealth and telemedicine. And that's not something that a lot of us maybe thought we were ever going to need to do or want to do, but we had to do it. And I think that we, we don't know what this is going to be. We still don't. No, I mean, and I'm not going to get into like the waves of the pandemic conversation or talk about a vaccine or anything like that because that's not what we're here to talk about today. But we don't know when this is going to end. We, I mean, there are companies that might stay entirely virtual for the time being with no end date in sight, and this is just the new normal. You know, we have parents teaching kids at home and helping them, you know, with their virtual learning, and we don't, the school districts are assessing it quarter by quarter. We don't know when this is going to end, but the telehealth thing has helped a lot. And I think that, you know, as we've explored more of that, and I'm not saying that it's the be all end all and that we're going to get rid of, you know, in-person doctors because that's absolutely not what I'm saying. But I do think that leveraging this as a strength and understanding a little bit of what the implementation truly looks like. We have rural communities that are drastically underserved. We have, you know, over, I think it's like some 46% I'm sorry. No, 64% I can I can read. 64% of, of counties have a shortage of mental health providers. You know, over half of them don't have a buprenorphine provider. We need access to services for people who are in these underserved harder to access rural communities who don't have to so they don't have to drive 2 hours to the closest place to see a doctor. If you're a patient at a methadone clinic and you have to go in person that's 6 days a week. You know, and we have people who are driving hours and hours every single day to take care of themselves. You know, so what can this look like in the long run? How can this help really reform that treatment and recovery system so that people can get the services they need where they're actually located and not have to worry about transportation or driving or or all of those things? So that's one positive. And I mean, it's going to take time. We have to definitely, you know, take a look at standardization of care. You know, what kind of guidelines do we need? Everybody pivoted right away. We weren't entirely ready. But there's been some incredible work done. And that goes for the community groups, too you know i think that behavior change takes a while and our expectations adjusting those takes a while but we can really get there and then the the second thing and this is very much what i would call a silver lining it's very much a silver lining but we're talking about this differently than we used to stigma is one of the biggest barriers to receiving services the national survey on drug use and health which is concert uh, which is um done every year uh they reported last year that You know one of the top three reasons why people didn't seek treatment who needed treatment why they didn't seek it was because of fear of stigma like stigma related reasons be it from an employer or friend and family etc i mean the number one reason was that they couldn't access it or it wasn't you know financially doable but the next reason all it's all about stigma and bias and fear and when people feel ashamed when they're forced to isolate they don't seek the help that they need they don't and this is, you know, we're talking about this differently. We're having a dialogue in a really different way about how this is going to look coming up. And I can only imagine that, that, you know, it's not easy. And of course, none of us wish the pandemic had happened. But this is what you know, kind of the definition of the silver lining is if we can really start these conversations, keep
0: them going. Just to comment on what you said earlier about the the use of drugs. I mean, we we all think we have it under control, right? Because. The moment we admit that we we don't have our drugs under control, our prescription drugs under control, that puts us into the category of a drug user, right? And we all have stereotypes of what a drug user is. We've seen them on TV. You know, they portray them as a certain stereotype, and that's not us. We don't we don't look like that. So so we must not be uh, addicted. We must not be. Uh, dependent on this because we're not we're not that way we're not that stereotype right so so the first step is just recognizing that that those stereotypes are not typical right so i wanted to move to employers so let's talk a little bit about what can what can employers do you mentioned that you know every one of us now are there's more and more people working virtually and and what can employers do in this virtual world to to recognize uh the issues in their employees and and so how can they how can they do this virtually
2: yeah sure so you know as with everything we've talked about obviously having a multifaceted approach is really important and so that includes you know the the messaging both non and verbal that's coming from your leadership that includes like your safety culture right you've got, you know, your supervisors and managers and how important they are to the conversation because for a lot of employees, the door to the rest of the organization is your supervisor, you know, especially if you're in a big organization. that your supervisor is the person that, you know, is that he or she is the door to like the rest of the organization. And then, you know, we look at, you know, HR, obviously, if you want to make these changes, you got to make sure that it's supported by policy, you know, and having an educated and engaged workforce so your actual employees, the employees are, greatest asset right you know and then of course your safety professionals and that's you know obviously a lot of what we're kind of getting at today is that you know mental health issues and safety issues uh, and 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 substance use can impair they can be a they can you know they impact the workforce you know in terms of lost productivity time turnover etc but it's really hard so you know your safety professionals like you know some people there's lack of risk recognition fatigue can be a symptom of a lot of these conditions you know These are all things that really do impact the safety culture. So you want buy-in from everyone. So, you know, first and foremost, obviously engaging leadership. And again, this kind of goes back to that silver lining conversation we just had, is that we're paying attention in a different way now. We're ready in a different way. We're seeing it. You know, at the National Safety Council, we founded the SAFER initiative, which is Safe Action for Employee Return, which really has to do with how do we get people to go back to work safely, but also like obviously the people who are still working and keeping them safe as well and and consistently as we've done webinars throughout and varying engagement tactics since we founded this in early or i'm sorry late april early may has the primary concern of employers has been the stress and mental health impacts on their employees this is a concern so we are there we have the engagement we understand the second part of course is education and i'm not just talking about like you know what is a prescription opioid Obviously, it's important to understand what a prescription opioid is, but we're talking, you know, how do I recognize in myself and how do I recognize in others, you know, signs of mental health distress. And to be really clear, we're not saying that every supervisor or manager or employee should be like, hey, guess what? I know of signs of symptoms. Now I'm going to diagnose you. Like I can say this person, I can say Rachel has been behaving oddly on Zoom and therefore she must have a drinking drink. Or Rachel has been distracted, so therefore she must be depressed. We, you know, that is, again, mental illness is different from mental health. But what we can do is recognize when somebody's not doing well. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, your team, you know, and what does that look like? You know, people who know me know that if I'm really quiet or not engaged, that something's up because I tend to talk a lot during meetings. That's just like who I am. So if I'm not, you know the question is, you know, is Rachel okay? And that's the way, that's where we start. Are you okay? I noticed that you weren't engaged. Are you okay? I noticed that you've been late in the mornings recently. And it sometimes the answer is, yeah, I've been late in the mornings because I've had to get my kids set up for virtual school. And like, I just, it's been really stressful and I haven't been able to make the morning huddle because it's just not going well. At which point, you know, part of your job as a supervisor is to say, you know make it safe for the employee to come to you and tell you that you know before it becomes a problem so making sure that people know like hey i got you we can be as flexible as we need to be whatever but part of that's also being able to say i noticed that something was up Do you want to talk about it and if the answer is no the answer is no but you know you can then say you know these are the resources internally you know maybe an employee assistance program Familiarize yourself with your local resources. Like again, I live in Madison, Wisconsin, and there's a ton of different local community groups here that focus on mental health, mental well-being, recovery. You know, even having a, a list, you know, a safe word document that just has all of it that you can just send on over. People don't trust always that EAPs are confidential. They don't really trust it. They might not be willing to call. Mm-hmm. It might be worth having um, saved around. So like, you know, that kind of stuff. And you know, obviously, you're going to be able to tell if somebody's sitting there and they're falling asleep like clearly something's wrong, you know, like this, that's still obvious even when you're on a Zoom call or on another video conferencing call. Um, But really building in to everyday check-ins, it may feel kind of hokey at first, you know, and people might not wanna answer the question, but as a leader or as a supervisor, doing it yourself, being open yourself, saying, yeah, just FYI guys, you know, I'm gonna be a little bit, you know, my response time might be a little bit delayed this week. We're dealing with some family stuff or X, Y, or Z. Leading by example is really important.
0: And who better to recognize that than, than their supervisors, right? I mean, in, in all organizations, all members uh, of management may have some contact with people, but it's your supervisors who know those people more closely. They see them every day. And who else, who better to see those subtle changes and are more qualified to see those subtle changes... Then the supervisors, the people who they see and talk to every day.
2: Exactly, and you see, you just hit the nail on the head. There are subtle changes. Oftentimes, it is subtle, and you know it's it's again always worth checking in. You know, even in a time where we're not living through a global pandemic, or we're not you know existing through all of these changes, it's always worth checking in every single day. But you know, we we talk a lot about um, building resiliency in from the ground up, so. Uh, you know it's having a resilient workforce betters your entire organization period and a lot of resiliency has been dramatically tested over the past six months um people are learning new things new coping skills i mean again encouraging just check-ins and, and, and you know if you feel like you are in a workplace that doesn't have a psychologically safe culture. Like if your employees don't feel safe or you don't even feel safe, maybe like going to HR or like accessing the EAP services or, you know, leaderships not buying in, then you know, there are individual things that we can all do to kind of support ourselves. You know, and maybe it's not gonna be codified into into policy, but there are, you know, and it sounds so cliche, but it's so true, you know, making sure that you stop working when you're done working it's so easy when, cause you know, people said, Oh yeah, we're working from home. And then somebody one day said to me, yeah, it feels like I'm living at work. I was like, Oh, you know, that's such a, an interesting paradigm. shift so when you feel like you can't turn your computer off, when you're still looking at your work phone, setting those boundaries, I'm available from eight to five, and then I'm signing off or, um, you know, a healthy diet and getting outside. I mean, I live up Wisconsin it's about not about to be winter but like it feels like fall now for the first time so you can kind of feel it coming right so it's going to be different in a few months what does that look like how do we prioritize getting outside what are your stress reduction techniques for yourself you know is it setting up an appointment with a therapist just to have somebody to talk to is it you know reading a good book is it you know a different tv series are you too tuned into the news do you have to turn the news off You know, are you, have you had too much screen time back at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody wanted to do like zoom happy hours at night. And I was like, I'm in front of a screen all day. You guys, I can't do, can't do it. Like, I love the idea. Can't do it because I've been in front of a screen for eight hours on video calls all day. So this is not relaxing, you know, so setting your own boundaries, really figuring out what works for those kind of individual things, especially if you're not feeling great about your workplace right now, you know, workplace change takes time and there's certainly some actions that you can take and finding your people that you can trust in the workplace and figuring out how to how to support each other maybe it's an event session maybe it's you know more than that maybe you do have to take something to hr or whatever the case may be um taking care of yourself first and foremost is important as well
0: yeah our, our work-life balance has been blurred a lot lately uh, there's so many people transitioning to working at home that that when they were traveling to work you know you could come to work and then on your way home if you were driving home you could kind of switch gears you'd go from from home or from work to home life but it's difficult now because now work is in your living room it's there all the time and it's it's difficult to make that transition from work to home if works always there so if someone approaches an employer and says you know hey I have an issue what are some things that employers can do for that employee? What are some policies that they have? You know we we work in it's a whole new world for us right now right so our policies that we have for the people that are coming to work may not be good enough for the people who are now staying at home so where can employers go to to get help not only for that employee but also for their internal policies because they may need to adjust some of their policies for those people who are working at home. What what resources are out there for employers to to help them guide them through this 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 difficult time?
2: So a couple a couple different answers. And I, before I answer though, I wanna go back and say one more one more just like personal recommendation for like the work home balance. And this is something that I struggle with all the time, is you know, if possible, try to not, you know, I'm, I am like the queen of like, well, I'll just start the laundry during the workday so it'll be done. Or I, oh, I can, you know, start something cooking or whatever the case may be. Or I can just go out in the garden for a little bit. And, you know, it, it's when you you're you kind of I'm kind of in charge of not blurring my own lines. You know, I don't need to be doing laundry during the workday. I can just do it at night. Nobody. It's laundry. Like, it's going to be fine, you know? So, so really just, again, setting your own boundaries, but even for like the way that we all engage ourselves with our home, like it's super easy. To be like, oh, just stop over and do the dishes while I'm on the phone with somebody, you know, just mentally, you know, keeping your work and home life separate as possible and not blurring that too much. Sometimes you can't avoid it, but sometimes you can. So just a personal thing from one of the things I really struggle with is trying to really focus on that and remind yourself, you don't have to be productive doing four things at once and multitask and try to balance both things at once. It's okay to do them one at a time. Um, so, all right, so things employers can do in terms of a policy thing. So there's, there's some general recommendations. One is that, you know, from an HR perspective, when you are looking at schedules, having flexible schedules right now is absolutely critical. We've mentioned a few times already the child component of this and the child in school component. I mean, you know, there are, you know, the way that we're usually structured at the National Safety Council is that we have, you know, our working hours for the organization are sometime usually between. We have people across the country, so between seven and six ish, depending on where you are, and you're, on, you're obviously working a forty-hour work week, and we do have, you know, flexible work scheduling things like you can work, you know, four nine-hour days and one half day, or whatever the case may be, and we have all these different options, right? But that's not the same as people like actually taking advantage of them and people knowing that they can so reviewing with your employees what the options are and especially if they've changed because a lot of time a lot of us had to put in some like temporary measures (laughs) to say okay so this is what we're going to do we didn't know we were going to have to do this you know and people are overwhelmed with information right now so over communication really isn't possible talk to your employees let them know what their options are what is the eap number you know, I didn't, before I started this job, and I had several jobs before this, I didn't know what an EAP was because I'd never needed to use one. My other jobs had them, and I'm sure the information was in my onboarding packet, but I didn't pay attention to it at the time because I didn't need an EAP. So in my head, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll sure, cool, and then I never used it, and I didn't even think about it. If I needed it, though, I would not have known it was there. So, you know, over communication of policies, the flexible time component is really, really important. Um, training for managers and supervisors on you know how to what to do if somebody does come to you with a problem right and that's kind of what you were getting at before if somebody approaches me or if i approach my supervisor and i'm like hey i've got some stuff going on does my supervisor actually know what to do aside from okay now let me get in touch with hr and i'll get back to you and 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 that's something that, you know, everybody has to work on, you know, what, what are the actions that I can take to truly support, you know, an employee both, you know, from in the, in the immediacy of the conversation, but then is the appropriate thing to link to HR, you know, what does our policy require a lot of us have, like you said, have alcohol and other drug policies, but a lot of that's focused really on the, the, you know, the, Paraphernalia or impairment in the workplace, or somebody who is using or drinking on the job, and again, like you said, has very little to do with like the actual process in place. So, review sessions, HR supervisors, leadership, what happens, what needs to happen, you know, go over the policy in minute detail. Again, remembering that even for super supervisors are people too. Like we don't necessarily remember the things when we don't think we're going to need to remember them right away. You know, some people have never had to do this. You know, what does that look like? What does return to work policies look like? Remind employees of what you know the policies are in terms of taking, you know, PTO or sick time or short term leave. What does that look like? You know, there there are and this is I'm certainly, you know, I'm not a legal expert, I'm not gonna delve into this, but there has been federal legislation passed that has to do with you know impacts of the, impact the COVID nineteen pandemic in terms of labor laws and you know and 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 time away from the job and what are those protections your employees need to know these things so that they can they can really take advantage of it obviously before you change your policies or before you communicate them if you're not sure what consult with your legal authorities you guys all have you should all have some sort of you know legal authority that reviews our policies anyway make sure that they're looking at it make sure that they're you know in the room so that you're not misspeaking obviously this is a special time for all of us and it's really easy to miss little details that really change a lot of different things but the policies you know this is the step one to knowing that we're going to be dealing with the impacts of this for a long time you know there was some research that was done and published in 2017 about the impact of trauma on employees and we're talking about um, you know communities with really high rates of unemployment even when jobs come into the area why can't people stay in those jobs and it's all it has a lot to do with the impacts of trauma And, you know, how employees, you can't leave it at the door. You can't leave it your home life at the door. We're going to be seeing this for a long time. And I'm not just talking about trauma from the pandemic, but this has been a tough year across the board for so many different reasons. But it can manifest as absenteeism. It can manifest as presenteeism. It can manifest in, you know, you're more likely to to develop a mental illness or a substance use disorder. We know now that, you know, more than 40% of the United States adults reported struggling with mental health and substance use in the month. I think it was June. CDC just published the data. It was June, July. We know that people who reported elevated levels even from that 40% were racial and ethnic minorities, were young adults aged 18 to 29, were people who were primary caregivers. And your employees are these people. We're going to be dealing with this for a long time. So. The little the things that we're doing now, we're making things more flexible. We're making things more accessible. We know we're working to make sure that our EAPs are out there and we're communicating about mental health. These are all the important things that we can't stop doing. That We have to keep doing because these are going to be this is going to be our workforce for a while. It's going to be our workforce for a while.
0: I think you saw that early on in the pandemic, you know, when when we were trying to curtail the spread of the virus and we were telling people to stay home. The data shows that the people that were getting infected the most was that age group you just mentioned, 18 through 39 because they couldn't grasp the change to their their life. They didn't want to change the way that they were continuing to do and live their lives. They they just they they didn't seem to grasp it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's different. You know, I mean, gosh, there were so many, you know, we started off and these giant hotspots in Seattle and New York and then you know, we maybe it wasn't in your community really yet, so you didn't quite think about it in the same way or take the same actions. And you know, in Wisconsin, it's been a very county by county. Um, it's been very county by county, and I, I won't get too far into the politics of it. But there's 72 counties in this state, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and and everyone's trying to do the best they can and figure out, you know, what's what. But like, I live in Dane County, and Dane County by far and above is one of the you know, more restrictive counties in the state, but there's, there's certainly counties that weren't. And I'm not saying that for good or for bad, but I'm saying it's just really hard to understand, you know, what's, what's what. And if you have people in different communities and, you know, like different school districts making different decisions and, and, you know, different townships making different decisions, there's just a lot going on.
0: And that's evident in the Houston area. When our Harris County judge back before Houston became a, a hotspot, implemented a mask order, and there was a lot of people pushing back. Nobody wanted to wear masks. We had counties saying they weren't going to abide by it uh, initially, and, and and then when Houston became a hot spot, and masks were required from the state level, uh, turns out she was a lot more forward thinking than we were giving her credit for. Uh, she was trying to curtail that the spread, and it just took us some you know a while to get used to the idea that. Masks are now going to be required moving forward. Yeah,
2: you know? and we're all resilient, and we can all you know make sure it just it, you know it's we all, but we all do it in different ways, and I think that like that's one of the really important things is that you know we kind of all have to, to we just have to be patient with each other, and not that that's like easy because it's not you know and under no circumstances am I do I mean to you know imply that it, that it's like an easy thing, but. um i think that you know being patient with each other and checking in with each other um is just important you know and and it's it's hard to overstate the importance of just being human to each other and we're all human too like all of us make mistakes like certainly you know we all choose to do things and we've made choices over the past you know six months that we maybe never thought we were going to have to make but maybe it's about self-quarantining or maybe it's about you know, going to spend the summer with your parents, or maybe it's about choosing to go back to work, or maybe it's about, like, you have to go back to work, and you have a compromised family member at home, and you don't know what to do, and and what's what, and, you know, so just helping people make the decisions they need to make to keep themselves both physically and mentally safe Mm -hmm. is, you know, we, in the safety industry, we do it all the time, you know, but a lot of people have never had to consciously think about it. And as safety professionals, we like to fix problems. That's what we like to do. We look at something, we want to fix it, you know, and this is a longer term thing. And the fixing it, you know, it's both like a long-term strategy, recognizing this is going to impact for a while, and then it's just the day-to-day.
0: Excellent. So last question, Rachel, we mentioned a lot of resources throughout this conversation. Is there any other resources available that that people should know about to look for or how to look for them? That that might help more people through this difficult time.
2: Yeah, so there's a, a few different things, and I'm I'm, I'm just going to list some off, and just this is just off the top of my head. So this is by no way, shape, or form a hierarchy of any any type. So, you know, first of all, shameless plug from us from the National Safety Council and the Safer Initiative. I I highly encourage that you check out um, a couple different things, but most importantly is you know nscorg health. And that will take you to the page with all of the mental health resources which are free and open to the public and we have a lot of different organizations highlighted there um, on the bottom of the page and their work but uh, just to call attention to one particular thing at the top of the page we do have we had a mental health webinar series last week it was five webinars they're a half hour each they're really short but they're specific to recommendations for hr for supervisors for leadership for um Employees themselves, and then um, uh, a topical webinar on substance use and intimate partner violence, which has also jumped during the COVID nineteen pandemic. So I highly recommend that you know you might be listening as a as a safety professional, you might be an HR person, whoever you are. There's something up there for you, and it's a half hour. We are very aware of the webinar fatigue, so we try to keep it nice and short. Um, you'll hear my voice a lot because I do a lot of the moderating, um, and then but you know on on that page. Um, I, I, the other, the, the, these partner organizations, you know, so we have, uh, there's an organization through the American Psychiatric Association Foundation called the Center for Workplace Mental Health. And the Center for Workplace Mental Health has two different resources on mental health during the COVID-19 pandemic, which are excellent. Psych Hub is another organization where especially, you know, they've rounded up a ton of different education materials, stuff for employers as well. Um, the kennedy forum is a long-standing organization that's focused on mental health and access to services for a long time Um, and there's you know so much else on that page that you know go click around and see what kind of fits with what you need sherm this you know hr has a ton of different resources you know as well we also have a webinar up there specific to um you know safety professionals and mental health so i encourage you to check that out um and you know again, I, and I, I can't speak to your local resources, but you know, I know that, you know, y'all are in, you're in Houston and you guys did not get pummeled by the hurricane, Right. but you guys were scared that you were going to, you know, California and Colorado have wild, you know, wildfires right now. I don't know. You know, Wisconsin is like knocked on wood pretty quiet right now, but we always have the potential for stuff that could possibly happen. Iowa and Illinois with the wind storm a couple of weeks ago, both got some serious damage, you know, familiarizing yourself with all sorts of different resources and support mechanisms, including things like for food insecurity, housing instability, et cetera. Those are the kind of resources that like these wraparound services that maybe when you're thinking mental health, you're not thinking, but they could be what your employees need so you know maybe put together a task force in your workplace you probably have a total worker health or a worker well-being type task force maybe that's a job for them is to pull together a list of local resources and make sure that your employees have it that kind of stuff and also you know recognizing that some employees are just never going to feel comfortable coming to their employer for help they're just not i mean so that's where this kind of more amorphous stuff about you know just being a supportive person and giving people a list of outside resources that might be all you can do and that's okay because you know Every little bit helps. Maybe you're going to actually sit with somebody and make a phone call. I used to work in direct service, and sometimes, you know, just those little things like giving somebody a phone number or making a phone call with them could change somebody's life. So the little things that you do change people's lives. don't forget that.
0: So, Rachel, based on our conversation, there's three main takeaways. One, know the resources that are out there. Know what is available, how to access it, research and find. So if one of your employees need them, Uh, and maybe they can't get to them you can you can help them guide them even if, if you don't have it you can help them get to it the second one was your supervisors making sure they maintain contact with their direct reports you mentioned that sometimes our supervisors are the ones who see those people every day and they can pick up and recognize those subtle details and those subtle changes that may be happening from this new work environment and third making sure our policies and benefits are in line with this, this new world that we're living in, uh, today, like, like you touched on before ours, ours policies and procedures are centered around people coming to work and actually working in our facilities. So recognition and, and, and paraphernalia and stuff like that at work. But what about all of the policies and procedures that apply to people who are actually working for our companies, but are at home? so we need to make sure that uh there are policies and procedures address that as well in this uh new environment that we find ourselves working in
2: right exactly you know and like i mentioned at the beginning it's we need support from all areas of all organizations not you know you can do all of the work you want to do about making sure that your supervisors know how to recognize signs and symptoms etc but if the policies don't match then there's a breakdown there and vice versa. If your supervisors don't know how to recognize signs and symptoms, then they're not gonna to get to the HR part with the benefits and the policies, right? So, um, yeah, I, I think that sums it up really well. And then of course, it's like the, that last plug is always just to, to be compassionate, be human, think
0: about right. you know, and, and other people's shoes. Like the resources you guys had, your webinars on the, at the NSC. Uh, it, can you give us that website one more time? Just yeah,
2: nsc.org slash mental health.
0: Thank you, Rachel. This is this has been a very interesting conversation. I think we've we've learned a lot. Thank you for being a guest. It's been a pleasure talking to you. This is this is going to be posted up on the Google, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from.
2: Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you having us on. And again, you know, take care of yourself first and foremost, and take care of your family. Be safe, whatever that means to you. And and you know, reach out to National Safety Council, the Houston Area Safety Council, if you all need more support, because that's what we're going to do. So thank you guys for listening.
0: Thank you, everybody. And as always, stay safe.